put that in and then we can have a probably do it just now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, that were a breath of fresh air, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> this episode it's a bit more of a political one, but we do get around to the building part, the retrofit, eventually. He's a very impressive man, isn't he? Yes. There was a, a lot that we learned discussing Scotland in particular. And mm. don't be put off by all the talk of independence in Scotland particularly. It was just really, really illuminating. And it's yeah. quite a long one. You're going to have to break it up, do you think? I think so. And I think he's, yeah, I think we'll make it into two parts. And maybe this is the first part we're talking about just now. But what, what I thought was, what I thought was excellent was his clarity and vision for what he's trying to do. And I think sometimes we come at things from the static or the staid position of, of where we're at. And I think some of his views and, and opinions and strategies were really quite, yeah, quite, um, quite out there. Not out there, but quite. Um, well, quite alien to the conversations we're normally having. Yeah. His, his approach to it, because he's a political strategist, so his approach to framing what you need in a movement, and as much as the low energy building and retrofit sector, it is all businesses or public institutions. Yeah. The angle that we're taking is something of a movement. And yeah. so his framing that comes towards the latter, where he divides, where he breaks it down into the characters you need, like the, yeah. the roles that people have to fulfill. I won't go into that now because it's a, a fun bit of the conversation, but yeah. I think that was really illuminating and instructive as to, well, the positions that we inhabit in this space. Mm. You don't have to do everything. You just have to do enough. You have to be doing yeah. something. Um, yeah, one of the three things. But I, th- I thought what was what was excellent in the conversation was the ability to reframe the entire argument about, and we're we're fed. I think this is a UK phenomenon. We're fed on what we can't have and how how much expensive it is to have have change. But his reframing of what could be done, how it is done, and the positive impact uh, is something that I think was really compelling and people will be interested. In. So yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All too often we focus on the negative. I saw your LinkedIn post the other day, mm. like making reference to climate catastrophe. Yeah. Which is right. But we yeah. need, we do need a counterpoint. Uh, yeah. And so that's right. that's the bit that Jeff always talks about with the we shouldn't be talking about cost, we should be talking about comfort. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. now with the economic pain people are feeling, cost is comfort to a degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but he he makes a good point about, and you're right, and that's a probably overly negative post on my behalf. And I think what he makes is a really good point, especially the younger people is. And again, I won't give much away, but you know, there is hope, there is a chance, and there's something you can do. So he's not as negative, perhaps, as that post I put out. And I think he's absolutely right, you know. Yeah. Not goose, you know? Well, no, no, like it's a dire situation. Like you have to yeah. acknowledge the negative. For too yeah. long, we've only focused on the 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 sunny, optimistic predictions when the yeah. situation has always been worse than we were ever told. An awfully yeah. lot like the whole smoking debate for years and years. Yeah. Well, such is life. Um, there are things we can do, uh, but we just need to tell a better tale and we need to get the right cast of characters in, on board to help tell it. And we need to promote the positive, optimistic examples. I think that's what I took away the most. Yeah. Like, And I think on that basis... Let's listen to him because I think you're right. He is one of the characters that need to tell the tale. And I think he has a positive input. So oh, let's listen to him. Just one one last note of warning. Uh, for a change, it got a little bit profane at points. 
So just in case anyone's got kids knocking about, uh, I think about halfway through, Robin got a little bit too exuberant and got carried away with himself. Remember, but, I was having a beer. I don't think anyone else was having a beer. But anyway, oh. yeah, if you've got little ones, put them in a room, <laughs> lock the door. Cool. All right. Enjoy. Well, shall we shall we crack yeah. on and do this? Like we've got <laughs> just to warn you, I'm first of all, I'm not 100 percent I've got I got a virus last week. The man that leveled me, I'm not back for it yet. So I'm maybe a wee bit woolier than usual. All right. So we're here today with Robin McAlpine from Commonweal, Jeff Colley, Passivas Plus, Sarah and Duncan. What we're we going to talk about first. So we've got Robin on from the Commonweal. Robin, do you want to tell us a bit, a bit about who you are first? Yeah, sure. Name's Rob McAlpine. I started Commonweal. Um, it, was a, it was a project that I, I had started a previous think tank. We did a project during Indiref, which was called the Commonweal Project. And after Indiref, it kind of spun out and it was its own think tank. So it became its own organisation. So we have a think and do tank that does policy work right across the spectrum of public policy in Scotland. Uh, so the reason that I think I'm particularly here just now is we produced in 2019, we produced what we still think is the world's first comprehensive costed Green New Deal for anywhere. So it was a, a full proposal, which I should be waving at you, but I can't see a quote. I don't know, I don't know where I've put it. Um, it's a, it's a how to take everything to zero. So not net zero, zero, zero. And not just carbon. Carbon, pesticides and biocides, soil degradation, water loss, plastic pollution, chemical pollution. So we, we identified, I, I did that there to cover up the fact that I forgot in the last one. There's seven primary environmental crises facing the world, and our goal was to get them all. Oh, I resource drain. That was the other one, natural resource drain. Um, our, our aim was to try to see how far to... How close to zero could you get Scotland? Zero plastic pollution, zero pesticides, zero resource waste. Um, and to be honest, you'd be surprised that you can get it pretty close to zero if you're serious. So that's 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 where I'm coming from with this. Is is um, we look a lot. We've looked a lot at housing as a social policy, but we've also done a lot on housing as a as an environmental climate change policy. Mm-hmm. Cool. Where would you say? Where would you say you are right now? Like, so that's a bit of a backstory. And what's your current focus and where's the majority of your energy going at the minute? Well, I mean, this is a tricky question in Scotland at the moment because um, we're working on a we're working on a project which is about pulling together all of our work into a wider vision for what could an independent Scotland be. But we're doing a whole bunch of things. So our big our big um the big piece that we launched this year, which I'm particularly proud of, is they've announced there's going to be a, a um, national care service in Scotland. Uh, and I'm afraid it's a horrifying privatisation fest, which is being designed, literally being designed head to toe by KPMG at the moment. So we produced uh, a proper vision on the basis of if you are starting a national care service and you're going to call it that, what would it look like if it had the ambition of a beverage report? So this was our beverage report for care. So we've spent a lot of the year working in care and we're doing the same kind of thing in health and education as well just now. But we've done a lot of other work. We had a, a major piece of work on the embarrassing fire sale of Scotland's renewable energy potential um, 
uh, the the offshore wind auction, which just took place, called Scott Wind, which must be the first auction in the world in which there was a cap. So it was a, an absolute cap. Nobody, none, none of the bidders were allowed to bid more than ten thousand pounds a, a kilometer. And what do you know? Every single bidder bid ten thousand pounds a square kilometer. And we had just, we just, this is a disgrace. This is unbelievable. It takes about, it's less than two weeks to pay off the license costs once it's all fully functioning. Um, it, it's generating five and a half billion pounds in profits a year, this whole sale off. And we sold the whole thing for three quarters of a million pounds. It's madness. Just incompetency, or Robin, or do you think there's something more going on? Did Never incompetence. Tin foil half out. No, no. It's absolutely lobbying. And yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. I, I'll, I'll take a, a little bit of delicacy with what I'm about to say here, but not much. I um, I know somebody, we did some work with somebody who'd been a senior, a senior engineer with Scottish Power. And he described the process of having come in to see the Scottish government. And what they did was, they had a strategy which was um, ask for a large subsidy just to keep the fee down. So they went in and they said, well, our aim here is zero fee. And they went in and what they said was, oh, this is barely profitable, which said it was a lie. We were desperate for it. Um, if you want us to take this off your hands, you'll need to give us a subsidy. And he says, well, can you believe it? They turned around and said, all right then. So we didn't actually think anyone would be daft enough to give us the, the subsidy. We were only doing that to bid them down on the fee. And they said, oh, well, we'll waive the fee and you can have the subsidy. So, no, it's absolutely lobbying. The, 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 the politics in Scotland, is government in Scotland is phenomenally um, sensitive to lobbying. And yeah. it, that's what it is. And yeah. I tell you, the big fight now is they've been, the, the energy companies, I mean, about, what was it, about 30% of it went to Shell and BP. The big energy companies are now lobbying for 100-year leases. It's just unconscionable concept. Um, now they're not. They don't think they're going to get that. But I want them. If it's going to be this bad, it should be a ten-year license. They'll have more than paid their money off, and and plenty more in ten years. And then the, the public realm could take it back. But yeah, it's absolutely lobbying. There's there's no explanation for having a an auction which you say, oh, but please don't give us too much money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so, give, me, give, give me another credible reason why you would do that. I I can think of um uh, one um. Example in in Ireland with our uh, energy contracts when the state was uh, you know granting licenses for people to generate uh, renewable energy or whatever, one of the tactics that some of the 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 companies in the sector would or directors of companies in the sector would do would uh, they'd they'd bid under um, uh, they'd register under their, the, the Irish spelling of their name. So they go with, um, uh, you know, uh, so I, I don't know if that's happened with Scots Gaelic, whatever. It's another trick to watch out for, just if you want to be a little bit more opaque. Although I would have thought that's a great way to arouse there's, suspicion, frankly. You know? There's no there's no need to hide it. There's only, only about eight companies, one, and they're on consortium with each other. This is the thing about, um, this is the thing about Scotland, is we are so needy. I mean, it makes me sad just now. We are so needy just now that if we can say we just had court inward investment we don't ask any questions so i mean this is a slightly different story but it's a big story in the i think it was the herald this week boost of confidence as major retail sale blah 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 
Now, one of my team with Craig O'Hara Policy, he summarised it quite nicely, which was aristocrat buys empty shop from a Qatari pension fund. I mean, that was literally the story. It was a, it's a shopping mall, which nobody can, they can nobody wants. It's, just, it's, it's dead. It's, it's, it's the post-shopping boom. And it was bought up as a property speculator by the speculation by the Duke of Clue. And this is what we in the 21st century in Scotland are representing as a, great, a giant boost of confidence. Aristocrat buys empty shop and Qatari pension fund. I mean, I find myself embarrassed at the moment. Yeah. Sorry, is this weird, Robin, you think? Because, I mean, one of the the big, uh, you know, one of the the big things in the last 30, 40 years, if you look at the the journey that Norway was on in in the same time as Discovery of Oil in the 60s and 70s and how Norway has through it. So you might have touched on this before when when I was just out, but where Norway has, um, has created the Sovereign Wealth Fund and has a, you know, I can't even remember the figure, but, but billions where they, and at the same time as what we did, we privatised oil in, in the UK. We made a lot of American companies very, very rich. Is this the same Is this the same path we're going down through renewables with tidal, with wind? Is, is that what you think? Well, I mean, thankfully, and I say thankfully, we're not actually auctioning off tidal capacity yet. I mean, I hope that God some lessons have been learned from this. Um, this was only offshore wind. No, it was it was both um, floating offshore wind and and seabed anchored offshore wind, uh, but it's it's a mirror image. I mean, look, I'm I'm coming at this today a little bit in the teary going on fury side because I've been just I, I was reading some Grenfell stuff earlier on, and it's it's I mean it's it it, it would be it would be almost reassuring if I could say it was only Scotland. We are living in a period of rapacious capital. Um, capital can't find anything to do with itself. And it is asset stripping the planet. I mean, it, it, this is what's happening. So when somebody says, here's a... I mean, I'm not too massively conspiracy theorist with this. When somebody says, here's guaranteed money from Scotland's wind from over there, and we'll give you it for 10 grand... Aye, sure, of course. And like I say, what frustrates me is the Scottish government appeared to have been so desperate to announce inward investment that it didn't really care what that meant. And that's that's where I think we've got to. Nobody, I, I wish, I believe, that even Norway would have set up an oil fund if discovered oil now, but I'm afraid that the rapacious capitalism is so universal everywhere just now that it's going to take governments of some genuine courage to do these sorts of things anymore. And I don't see where they are right now. Well, the, the issue we seem to be facing is so much of it is based <coughs> in fantasy and little else. If you watch like crypto markets collapsing because tether coins are algorithmically tethered to nothing, to, to a fantasy, to an idea of a thing that might work. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at Netflix, I was just listening to a podcast about it this morning. Like, oh, turns out, basing your entire business model on other people's back catalogue and they're investing unwisely in your own back catalogue to create your own library. Oh, it doesn't work in the long term. Like, all of these ideas, like it was abundantly clear at the start. And then that trickles down. So, you know, capital only had fancy places to go because, like, it had rinsed everything else out. And so now we're back into eating the last dregs of the public sector. 
So the last dregs yep. is going to be new frontiers and energy. And the bit that Duncan highlighted for us to have a quick natter about, which was this, the, the, the trying to eat up social housing with a right to buy scheme that's been introduced to that. Like, so governments now in the same sort of fantasy economics, the, 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 the joke about socialism is that you run out of other people's money. And the current joke about the Conservative government out of England is that they've run out of their own assets to sell, so they're pinching other people's and knocking them out. So yeah. the idea that you're going to sell social housing from housing associations at a discounted rate and then not give people the means to replace the stock, like, Jesus wept, what on earth? There is a wonderful French film called La Haine from the late 90s. There's many hate. It's, it's a black and white film based in a Banaloo. And there's a story in it which, it's, there's a surreal moment in the middle of it. Now, boy... Um, the two are three protagonists, a young, young dispossessed Arab, um, French, uh, Parisian suburbs, and they, they they end up in a toilet when they bump into this old man. It tells yeah, them a story, yeah. and the old man's story is a simple one. And he says, "Man jumps off the side of a tower block, and as he plummets to the ground, he repeats to himself over and over: so far, so good; so far, so good." This is what happened in 2007. The financial sector was patently massively overvalued. Massively overvalued. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. But everybody knew that this whole house of cards is built up on top of a foundation of this shaky financial assets. And so they threw money at it to reinflate assets um, across the board. And it made it look like it wasn't falling down anymore. So far, so good. So far, so good. And then they they had to they had to run an austerity program off the back of that. They didn't have to, but they chose to. And that did all sorts of harm. So far, so good. So far, so good. It's okay. It's hurting. It's working. And then we get hit with Brexit, and then COVID, and then and each time throw something else at it, throw something else at it, and and it sort of looks like it works. So far, so good. Now it's. Um, it's the supply chains, the cost of living crisis. Um, and this time we're just going to throw the Ukrainians against it, it looks like to me. So far, so good. So far, we'll just keep this ticking over for as long as we can. And that is more or less how everything's going. And you're absolutely spot on. I have been trying to explain this process in Scotland for ages. In 2007, we lost our global banking sector and what was us fraction of a second as these things go. One day, the second biggest bank in the world, and then what was virtually the next day, three years later, blink of an eye, no banks, all gone. All, I mean, apart from fake brass plates. Now, at this point, what does the Scottish establishment do? Scottish establishment has been living off the crumbs of global banking corporations for as long as forever. And the answer was, it just closed in and it started eating Scotland. I mean, literally, just eating assets, eating land, eating marine rights, energy rights. Um, but also, we don't have the council housing sale stuff, but uh, we've got scandals galore up here of assets being sold or assets being swindled or assets. Being, it's the same point, which is so far so good. We're only feet from the ground and we're still saying so far, so good, so far, so good. And I am now very, very worried. I mean, I, between climate, I mean, I, I find it amazing that equity firms are still buying up um, shares in 
uh, Glasgow Airport. And if any of you don't know, there is no climate model where Glasgow Airport survives. Glasgow Airport's in a river basin. It's, it's going to be underwater. Mm. Uh, <laughs> 1.5 degrees and the whole of Glasgow Airport's um, subaquatic. And they're still investing in it. Why? So far, so good. This is interesting. Sea pines, sea pines. Yeah. yeah, this is interesting because like we've had this conversation before about that same concept, that same notion of like so far, so good. And it's it's around that really insidious message of keep calm and carry on, right? So it's that's what's embedded all of that, certainly like here, which is like just don't look too closely and you just keep yourself busy over there while we keep our foot on your neck. That's okay. Like and just let's keep pushing on in that direction. And where I kind of want to like, yeah, it's 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 a where I was like really curious about the work that you were doing is in addressing this because I've been reading The Pattern and Instinct again by Jeremy Lent. And he talks about um culture building values and then values shaping history, right? So like this is where I think community action and inspiring individuals within communities to realize their agency collectively to shape that cultural change that we really desperately desperately need what is your experience with the common whale around how your message is received across the communities that you engage with this is the same story over and over again our agenda is predicated primarily on what people say they want they want more time, they want um, more security, they want better housing, they want more clean, pleasant outdoor space, they want good, strong public services, they want respect, they want a sense of fairness in their society. But the problem is not what people want. So I, it would be worth saying as well that I came to think thanks from a different kind of like I wasn't public policy. I'm a political lobbyist political strategist. This is what I do. And the problem is that all these theories of culture and value theories have changed. It's all very well, but there's something that people are a little bit, all that culture and value stuff forgets the big, big old elephant in the room, which is power. Power and power and money are crucial. So you can say, let's have community-led but unfortunately, again, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Scotland's got the worst local democracy of the developed world. We don't have any community-based power. There's no community-based power. So we've got we've got regional government and nothing below it. So I'm, I'm, I live in a town of 5,000 people, and it's pretty well the only, and this is happening, pretty well the only country in the world, in the developed country in the world, where we wouldn't have a town council. I mean, somewhere, pick somewhere, I, I usually give the example of Kirkcaldy. Kirkcaldy, big town, um, substantial big town, that doesn't have any doesn't have any local government of its own. So the problem that the problem I've got is the is the um without sounding too statist here, the problem that I've got is that we are fighting a monster. There's this global equity monster. And the only monster that we've got capable of fighting it is the state at the moment. Um, and that's what that's what that's what worries me. There's a big fashion post-Corbyn across the British left of saying Corbyn didn't work. We're going to have to somehow dissolve and do this as a kind of guerrilla movement from the ground up. And the problem is they would the other side would absolutely love it if we did that. 
absolutely adore it if we did that. We can all go and flat pack democracy our hearts out because they've got the guns and they do have the guns. Now, there is no way around this. If we are going to allow asset stripping as public policy, communities will not be able to undo that. If we keep allowing quantitative easing to boost asset values in housing, I mean, it's nuts. There is no logical sense in which the UK's housing policy over the last 40 years is in anybody's interests, apart from people who are wealthy and that hold assets. And here's my here's the, the difficulty, and I'm only I say this with a hint of humor, but decreasingly that much of a hint. My housing policies basically arm people under the age of 30 and just tell them pick a house. I mean, that's how bad it is. My generation, our generation, has fucked them over so hard. And we're sitting there. We know what we did. We know what we did. We know how we stuffed our pockets with it. But we're in a big, giant Ponzi scheme. We don't think it's right, is my experience. I talk to people who who are nearly paid off their mortgage. They don't think it's right. But what are they going to do? They're they're trapped in this Ponzi scheme as well. But this is interesting as well to me because I do think there's something here, right? You mentioned power and I totally agree with this in a way, but I think there needs to be like a, a look at other ways into that power. And the thing that like I have been talking to, say, across the work I do at ACAN and it's something that actually it was Scott McCauley, myself and Scott were doing some talk to some, you know, I can't remember who it was. And the, the bit around power, which I which has resonated with me and stayed with me since, was that you just said to the students, you have more power than you have been told. And I think that bit is the bit that's really like interesting about it because within this power structure, within the systems that we have, which are completely broken, within those, I think my problem about it is, is that we can't continue to try and like change that rotten egg. There's a, quite a bit of just circumnavigating it that has to happen. And I also think that part of, of the success of that or the potential success of that is is encouraging people to recognize that they do have that power and they do have that agency. They can they can they can sidestep it if enough people remind them who are in the position of privilege to be able to say that sort of thing. Like you do have more power. Like just you know basically take over. You know because well, you you have the right to. Well, it's it's I mean it's really interesting that because uh, the like the dominant political forces in the UK are still the Conservatives and the Liberals. If you look at the way the Labour Party is currently formed, so the, the post-Corbyn left of the Labour Party, they've been disempowered to the point where you've got Social Democrats, which are tantamount to your SDP of the 80s. They're, they're little different. Like Keir Starmer is an authoritarian, like the new Labour of the 90s. He's very keen, very pro-market economics, happy with people being filthy rich, not that asked about chasing up the tax anymore. Like... So you've got these two movements. So you've got that liberal movement, which doesn't have any sort of theory of power. It pretends there's no way of exercising or acknowledging where power stems from. Then you've got the conservatives who deny that they hold any power. That is like part of their, their, their modus operandi. Like that is how they, they communicate and articulate themselves. It's not us. I mean, that's what this war on woke stuff is. Oh, I'm being cancelled again from my vaunted position. Like... You know, it's utterly preposterous. Like the 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 media is consoled by, uh, c- controlled primarily by uh, conservative backers. Like, so then you've got this disempowered left, which has nowhere to go, 
and little voice to be heard. And there are aspects of it which emerged out of the Corbynian grassroots of uh, Labour Party uh, activism, which you saw on the streets. And like the actual power, uh, the Liberals and the Conservatives rose up against them and crushed them. And they got stomped hard. Um, and all that's left over is people like Sharon Graham out of Unite, I think. Now, what she's been doing in the last 12 months since she got to her position, she's been very politically active by focusing on exactly what you were talking about, the power that workers have in staving off the worst excesses of their paymasters. Uh, and that's the only people exercising any sort of power I've seen in a long time. And in Scotland, it's really interesting because like, you've got uh, the Labour Party lost their market share, as it were, because that's how they think, um, to the SNP because of what happened post-referendum. You know, the, the very next day, without any sense of irony, the Conservative Party started producing evil laws, uh, like English votes for English laws. Like, they actually did that and they didn't care that it used the word evil in its actual title. Like, that's how power is exercised. So it's really concerning when we start looking at like how uh, these future forward-thinking assets like renewable power, power generation are just being frittered away in the same way North Sea Oil was in the 80s, which broadly funded American expansion and tax cuts to the affluent. Boom. Right, boom. Worse, Scotland's oil boom largely funded redundancy in social security payments for the deindustrialization of the north of the UK. But here, here's my here's my difficulty with this, which is putting my other hat on for a get for a second, my, my political strategist hat on. I, if I'm being cynical, I'm saying, oh, I love it when people pretend they've got power. Gives them a full sense of the capacity that they might beat me here. So I'm, I, I was a lobbyist for the university sector. So I was um, I was head of strategy for University of Scotland for about twelve years, and I told people fairly regularly, I, I know when we'll win because I know exactly where our power lies, and our power lies from prestige, money, resources, and bluntly. We've got the future of middle-class kids in our hands. And all we've got to do is say middle-class kids' these futures in risk because you're cutting their funding and they would buckle. It was a bit of hard power and a bit of soft power. The problem at the moment is that the, people do have power, and there is more power than you think, but it's very soft. Now, uh, uh, this is the problem with soft power is that it needs to be deployed very cleverly. Hard power... You can be dumb as fuck. I mean, look at look at Boris Johnston or Donald Trump or you know, if you've got hard power, you can be dumb as a bag of hammers, and that power will still work out for you. If you've got soft power, you need to be not only clever but well coordinated and consistent. And my point, I, I was just reading the um, idea to check about his piece about unite. Uh, in, the, in the Guardian today. And on the one hand, I felt, yeah, this is great. And on the other hand, I felt, this is a disaster because they've got hard power because they've got money and resources and staff and people and they can run these campaigns. And I fully understand that the Len McCluskey era maybe didn't deliver the political policy change that people wanted. 
But if the trade unions pull out or try to influence national politics, if they step fracked from this and they say, we're just going to be a member services organisation, that's legitimate as could be, and they can do it very well. What power is there left? What power is there to face anybody down with? You can't vote your way out of it in Britain. We've, we've got, we've got you know, a whole bunch of voting options which produce much the same outcome, give or take. Um, you can't vote your way out of it. You can't you can barely protest your way out of it anymore. You can't organise your way out of it because the traditional organising structure, so many of them have been lost. Now, I am not pessimistic in the sense that I always say this to people, if, you, if you're looking to work out whether you should be really worried or not, have a look at your raw materials. Do you have the raw materials? And I keep saying folk are really pissed off out there. They are facing hardship. The other side's global capitalism, we've already discussed, doesn't know what it's doing. Um, and we've got a pitch which works much, much better. The problem is we that's all fairly soft power. So to give you an example, bring it back a little bit to the housing situation. We've explained that if we do public, if we do house retrofit for environmental performances, net zero housing, not quite built, Alex. If we get, um, if we do that and we do it collectively in the public realm, it can be made to pay for itself because it's efficient, it's fast, um, it's comprehensive, and it's done properly. But you can also, you can, um, you can sustain supply chains and build up supply chains, which means you get much more of the economic capture from the tail of your work and all this kind of stuff. We've got a, pro, we've got a paper, which um, nobody's seen yet, but sort of a desktop here. We've calculated the premium for what it's going to cost to do this private. So, if you do it public, um, we've costed that already. We costed that. We costed that as part of the Common Home Plan, which is our comprehensive Green New Deal. So we know what that costs. <laughs> if you do it, how we are doing it. So what we did was we took the same calculations. And I'm going to give. I'll give some of this away, even though we're trying to get a media launch on it. So first of all, you've got to, the way that it's being done just now. You've got to maximise profit. You've got to incentivise profit because. You know, because we're not publicly funding it, everyone's got to do it out their pockets, which means that they've got to incentivize private sector contractors to do it. So there's a profit premium. We've worked out a way to calculate that. Then there's an inefficiency premium. Now, this one's crucial because what we're doing at the moment is if there's a street of 20 houses, we're sending one team to drive up and shove insulation on one day and then drive home again. Then three months later, we're sending somebody else up to drive the another house and then drive home again. Now, we've actually been quite modest in this one, but the, the, the UK government itself has a premium for doing it this way and an efficiency premium is about 15%. It costs you 15% more if you keep going back to the same place and doing the same job over and over again. Um, so what we did was we calculated this secret bill, that's what we're currently called, the secret bill that nobody's telling the people of Britain, Scotland as well. Nobody's telling them how much you're going to pay. So at the moment, climate crisis, by our calculation, is going to cost the average household £102,000 to fix. 
So that's replace your car, insulate your house, change your heating system, all that good stuff. Average household, 100 odd grand. See if that, 21,000 is pure privatization costs. If you were doing it publicly, it would be um, £21,000 per household less expensive because you don't have these inefficiency premiums, you don't have the profit premiums. It's a lot complicated. I won't go into it all here because I'm not quite sure that we should, well, cars is a whole other thing. So if you take cars out, so if you take all vehicles out and the idea that we've got to replace um, all without, it's about £56,000 per household on average. And the premium's about 10000 So either way, it's about 20% of the cost of what has to be done to save the planet. Now, if we, can, if we were able to tell households 10 grand to keep the private sector in its, uh, with its trough, its snouts in the trough. See, this is what I mean in the sense that I could sell that in two seconds. I'd have no difficulty whatsoever in persuading the UK that doing this in this manner is utterly mental. I, I use the example over and over again with this, which is it's easy to work this one out. Imagine if we built the sewers, but we tell everyone they had to build their own 10 metres. Or, or, or we, tell, we tell everyone, we're, we're going to do railways now because they're a good idea, right? Quickly, sort your 10 metres out. How big have they got to be? We're not going to tell you that. Just go and build two tracks, right? And then the, the, your neighbour will get the next two. But what if they don't meet? No, not our problem. We'll get a troubleshooter at the end to sort that out. That's more or less what we're doing. And it takes about three seconds to explain to anybody, this doesn't make any sense. But here's the thing. I don't have a £10 million marketing budget. No. That's, that's, that's what I mean about soft power, hard power. And are you thinking then, Robin, in terms of you're talking about taking the private sector uh, um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, rapacious capitalism kind of element out of this? Are you looking at the likes of, are you familiar with kind of um, uh, the, the concept of a publicly funded ESCO? Does that mean anything to you? Um, ESCO? I don't know the term ESCO. ESCO stands for Energy Service Company. Um, oh. um, and uh, it's a it's been a big... Uh, uh, it's it's been the main way that probably one of the main ways that district heating systems in particular have been have been funded. Uh, from from my part, it's probably been too focused on on mechanical plant and not enough on building fabric. Um, um, and the idea typically is that the ESCO then will uh, will offer you uh, large, typically only you know, oftentimes they're large energy users. They'll offer them like um, a they'll, they'll fit a new. Uh, boiler or or heat pump or whatever it might be in our CHP plant um or they'll put it as distribution system in, and they'll gar- they'll guarantee either a 10% reduction it might be a 15 year contract a 10% um reduction on on energy use uh compared to current or they might um they, they either fix or uh, relative to oil or gas or you know uh, would be another way to do it um and, and um they uh there have been some people suggesting that, that uh, first of all, an ESCO that focuses on uh, on land reduction rather than just an efficient plant, and uh, and that, that, that that's pub- publicly financed, so that you're not kind of concerned about it making large profits. You know um, uh, that that might be part of the solution. It's certainly, something that some of my colleagues interest in, as well as a model. Well, can I can I just very briefly explain our model because i i mean 
This is part of, again, the difficulty of where we're sitting just now, which is we're careening towards the end of civilization as we know it. I mean, I'm quite serious about this. I don't think people understand. Humans will survive. The planet will survive, but not in a form that we recognize just now. Um, it's, it's, it really does freak me out when I, when I look at the implications of losing. And I look at what's happening in the south of Europe just now and remind yourself how reliant we are on the south of Europe for quite a bit of our food crops. And this is going to happen more and more and more and more. So we're, we're creating to this problem. And what you're describing there is a perfectly feasible workaround. You know, it's, we, we, we kind of looked at some of the maths in this. The, the slight difficulty with it is that model of predicated on future savings it kind of works with it. It works fine with the energy. It works badly with house retrofit. House retrofit doesn't save you as much as people think in the short term, and it's intensely labour intensive. So it's expensive. Yeah, but and it's also it's also the reason why the way we talk about these things and the way we think about these things has to also change because you can't sell it that way. And one thing that we always talk about, and I'm piping up now because this is the stuff that we really get into the nitty gritty of quite a lot, is it's about the bigger, it's like, it's where in the system you understand you're intervening and it's how you're explaining this as a solution, as a series of broader benefits, that things that can actually have an impact far beyond sticking insulation on the outside of your house or how much it's going to save you or how much going to cost you like it's got it's, it's, it's continually about like trying to reframe this as part of like we kind of continue to talk about like the skills shortage in this sphere but actually how do you sell those those roles those jobs to people you need to start framing them as like you know your plasterer becomes a climate champion like it, it's it's got to be discussed in a much more like connected way than just well, like home retrofit because it isn't exciting and nobody actually really is engaging. Let's not sell ourselves too short here. So let me pitch you this. If we do everything in Scotland, the full shebang costs about 175 billion pounds. This will for, for Scotland. We can therefore pay that off. It's, you, you don't do this twice, you know, we're yeah. still using Victorian sewers. This we can pay off for 50 over 50 years, two generations. But we, we, we timed this. We reckon it's almost impossible to finish this in less than 25 years from when you start. Yeah. It just by we, we, we actually went to the level of how many joiners does it take to retrofit a street? How many streets are there? How many houses? We, we've got this down to the like days of labour. That's how we calculated the, the costs. It's about 175 billion. If you finance that over, over 50 years, the, the annual costs in the annual cost of paying it off is about five billion. Now, five billion pounds a year is actually not that big shakes. But what we then did was we said, now let's do this properly. So we are, as a result of this, we are going to be requiring massive volumes of insulation. So let's start with uh, forestry crops. Hey, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, and I think hemp's a good call because it's very fast growing. Um, the processing, the processing business, 
to turn these into insulation products and, and there's a whole thing. So what then we did was you got access to the Scottish IO model and the, the basic economic model of Scotland. And we ran through the IO model the number of jobs and the number of materials. So we just did a we just did a an increase in forestry and light manufacturing concomitant with how much extra materials you would need. It generates about a hundred thousand jobs. And these are all good jobs. And about four billion pounds a year. So it's about four billion pounds a year in income. And then with the way that we've done it, we would all we've costed this such that energy would come into public ownership. And so we just quickly over and said, well, then you've got direct energy sales of about two and a number of other direct incomes of about 2.5 billion. So here's what I'm offering you. I'm offering you pay nothing, get a cracking job guaranteed for 25 years as a skilled laborer for you or your kids or your neighbors. They'll sort you out an absolutely toasty, cozy house, no damp, no cold, no drafts, which will be dirt cheap for you to heat, especially since we're going to put a district heating system in for you. That 175 billion puts a district heating system in every house in Scotland, nearly. Um, and and we'll give you an extra £1.5 billion a year in public income to spend. That, Robin, that's a decent pitch. Robin, you're the most curious character. Because <laughs> for a good old chunk of this, it's been pretty heavy, kind of like, get our bend our brains around things and, and coming across relatively, you know, I'll say stark, not pessimistic, because there's also, obviously, you're working hard in the area. And then on the other side of it, we come out and there's like, the, the good news story bit that I'm like, obviously, that's what like I tell myself at night to get myself to sleep. And I'm happy with that. And I'm very familiar with those sort of proposals and, st- and, and, and scenarios. And that's why I guess I keep trying to come back to like, that is the good stuff. And we have to get that into people's heads. And we have because what what do you need to have that? You need people to believe it. You need people to want it. You need and, and I'm not just like people like we might think like oh you know the public but but everybody everybody has to do that and how do you infiltrate people's minds like that how do you get into a paradigmatic mindset shift that stuff is the stuff that will bring this around and could happen like quite quickly if the right thing happened what is what are those series of steps that we can start to like shake the tree and get those things happening like and it's like everybody doing every bit of it that they can together but knowing that they have allies and support across the board of other small soft powers as you kind of mentioned earlier as well like I think there is something in that and that's the bit that like I'm really interested in I know Dan's waiting to come in let me answer that question very quickly which is um give me 10 minutes to start a political party and a few million quids I'll make that happen this this is this is what I'm saying about hard power soft power the soft power is easy the story's better, the logic's good. I mean, I didn't even pitch you there what it would mean for a massive revival in um, rural Scotland. Mm. The power of land-based industries, the capacity to become virtually self-sufficient in construction materials, mm. which means that, I mean, I'm selling at the moment, give us our energy under our control, and because in Scotland there's zero input, you put up a wind turbine and it fucking blows. Um, I said I was going to swear less and I didn't really. But that's, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, Don't worry about you, it. So you, you, it doesn't, we are no longer 
reliant on global energy markets. You can all knock your pan out with your energy increases in Scotland. The wind will blow at the same pace it always is, and you'll get your electricity at the same rate you always did. You cannot panic about where the hell you're going to get your supply chain crap from, but we're not going to have a problem because we'll be able to build our own buildings from material that we grow in our land. There's a pitch for everybody in this. I can sell it to equity exactly. funders if I want. But the problem is, but the problem is right now, and I am going to swear again because I'm going to say fucking Kingspan. <laughs> um, I'm going to say fucking uh, basically the entire North Sea gas industry, yep. North Sea oil industry is yep. lobbying against green hydrogen. Yeah. Um, they have the ear, they have the money, they have the hard end of the power. This is why I keep coming back to this. Making this work is easy. Something else I should probably tell you. See, when we started this project, we did this, we did this in about a year. It nearly killed me. One of many projects that nearly killed me. Do you think I was manic? Um, so at the start of it, this was in about March, I was talking to the head of policy. Do you want to fix this? And he says, aye, right, let's just fix it all. Right, do you think we can? Fucking no idea. So what's the ambition? Right, let's just identify every bad thing and turn it to zero. All of it. Mm. And we're sitting chatting about this. I says, Craig, is this mental? He says, it probably is. Let's get a shot and see what happens. Right, well, let's get a shot and see what happens. Now, some of it's harder. I'm, we're talking house and it's a doddle. It's easy. We, we know how to stuff insulation and gaps that's that's easy bit um don't start me in agriculture it's a it's a harder problem to solve um that would really wore wore me down somewhat um you try and get the vegans the small producers the agroecologists the food industry the dietitians get them on the same page and you're doing well but um you can do all of this and what happened was we finished it and i went Thank the Lord. I've got young kids. I mean, my, my daughter's 12, my son's nine. And I was like, thank God. I can look them in the eyes and say, it's not over yet. And we've got a wish I could show you. Damn, I should have put it on for you. We took a punt in this. We've been using this slogan for a little while. We did T-shirts. You can buy them on the website. I encourage you. Um, and But we, we had a stall at the climate strikes. And we kind of did fairly well because what we did was we led with leaflets that just said, it's not fucked. It <laughs> is not fucked. But did that and sort out our artwork for next week then? <laughs> we've, got, we've got big bright red with white t-shirts. It's not fucked. And this is the starting point. And what happened was we were with all these school kids in George Square at the climate strike. And they were all coming over saying, ah, right. Now we, we all thought we were going to come and see Extinction Rebellion. So, but they're just telling us it's all fucked. Um, and I say, well, it's not. No, yeah. We'll, we'll get there if you don't, if we don't get a fire out. So, again, this is the political strategy of it. If you tell people it's too bad, they just yeah. go, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Yeah, we exactly. have to tell people it is not fucked. You are not fucked. Your children are not going to die horrible deaths from this point, from where we stand now, it is down to us. We can choose horrible deaths for our children or we can choose a long and happy life on a planet that still gives us a lifestyle to be proud of and where the wee birdies and the wee creatures 
all have space as well because there's absolutely no reason why it can't be a cracking future for them as well. And we've got to, this is that we've got to nail this. Two futures, pick them. If you want your children to die of hunger, get fucking on with it. Seriously, get them locked away in a room, dehydrate the little fuckers, leave them with no food, make them miserable, and you look at the consequence of your actions. You look your kids in the eye, right? But see if you're out there lobbing fucking fast fashion in the bin. Right? Don't head on you're not doing this to your kids. But what at least have the decency. At least have the decency to go and fuck up their lives. Oh, there we go. Hello, sorry, don't really. Um, have the decency to tell them the truth. We've got to take this on. We've got to fight this fight. And we've got to start saying this. It's up to you. You the, the big lies that you were told, the big lie that was you were told was you can make lifestyle changes to solve this. Can you hell? Can't be done. No yeah. garbage. We we did look at it. All the lifestyle changes in the world won't get us near net zero, right? Just just you for the record there, for, li- for for listeners, uh, my six-year-old daughter uh, walked into the room to uh, to hand me a cookie. Um, <laughs> yes, you see that? This is what's wrong. The children are feeding the adults and the adults yeah. are not reciprocating. That guy should be a lifestyle guru, shouldn't he? Yeah. Should be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he should be a YouTube I'm, channel. Yeah. I'm quite a fan of this. I did years ago. I wasn't sleeping well, and there was uh, one of them Chinese herbal remedy places around the corner. So I'll give you that a blast. And uh, it was all very pleasant. They, they gave me a cup of tea, a wee chat, and then some acupuncture. It was quite nice. Quite, yeah, it was quite relaxing. We massage. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was quite a thing. But then I, I became convinced that this is very well but I'm now got a business opportunity here because what I'm going to do is I'm going to open Scottish healing centres in Beijing quite clearly going to be doing well <laughs> what happens is it all starts the same so you come in maybe even get a cup of tea and they'll go through the same process how are you the discussions and all that but once that bit's over you get sent through the back where there's just a door and you're getting a can of McCune's export and you're booted out the door and saying, for fuck's sake, harden up and get on with it. You just close the door and that's just like, oh, no. <laughs> The really weird thing about that is Harvard University did a study on it. Not exactly that, but something similar. <laughs> it actually works quite well. Telling folk to get the fuck on with it. Um, I'll, I'll tone my swear I'm doing when you start recording but tell folk to get the fuck on it's actually rather good for health that is a part of the English that is a part of the English establishment though isn't it like Gordonston yeah. like the private school that they pay thousands per term for there's no fucking windows for people for the kids where they sleep or broken windows thin blankets yeah. they feed That's them right. Are they that's right. proper hardship to break that, them while they're young. That's, that's right. That Gordon's the things that whole thing about like fresh air and stuff and, and yeah, how uh, yeah, that's kind of brutal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I just like I was going to say, Robin, the original flavour to the, a Beijing Scottish retreat would, if you're going to go regional, it was like uh, you know either Edinburgh, you've had your tea, or in Glasgow, you know, or, do you want a cup of tea? So you could actually structure it even more, sort of. And uh, oh, I feel Lanarkshire. So that would be. That would be you would it would be a McCune's export, it'd be a, a 
Well, Buck fast and then struck for fuck's sake, did he do nothing mental now? <laughs> much caffeine sheep. Yeah. That stuff's wild, by the way. I don't oh, know. Buck fast. I, mean, I can drink it, and I have drunk it oh. many occasions, but yeah. fucking can't. Many, many, really I was many happy memories with that, but I, I would say many happy starts tonight, but then I can't remember very much yeah. afterwards yeah. with that. Yeah. The two, oh, yeah. like, the monks down at Buckfast Abbey do a tour, and I'm sure there's there's wee guys get down on the tour, and these monks must be <laughs> thinking, I've done we, we it. We make this. Yeah, I've done the Buckfast tour. <laughs> I, was, I was invited to a wedding down in Portsmouth. Up off, I yeah. I'd fly, <laughs> fly to Bristol, rent a car, drive down to Portsmouth, and I rode back up. I had the whole day, so I had to book the hotel by 11. But if my flight wasn't at seven at night or something, so I'm driving on the road and there's a big sign, Buckfast Abbey. And I'm like, I'm gone. There's no way I'm going to pass Buckfast Abbey. So I get there. It was a gorgeous, lovely day. And it's a beautiful place, Buckfast Abbey. There are three kinds of people at Buckfast Abbey. This is my discovery from the day. Person number one is the kind of person that likes a pleasant walk around an old English historical garden. There was lots of National Trust types there. <laughs> Number two are religious nutters, like the old woman that was standing inside me in the yeah. gift shop when I was looking at ironic merchandise and she was looking at little statues of angels saying, those aren't accurate because angels all look like little children. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, and the third is a group of folk wandering around just smirking at each other. And I said, right, I, I got, but I was there for a few years. I was quite quickly able to spot the Scots from miles away because they're just smirking. <laughs> the Scots were just smirking their way around the whole place. Mm-hmm. And then every so often, I was sitting by this point reading a book and I saw two groups passing each other and the smirk spread. And it was like, <laughs> ah, two, two groups of Scots meet each other at Buckfast Abbey and they can <laughs> smell it for, they can smell it from 100 yards away. They know perfectly well what the other lot are there for. And it's no historic, it's no historic England or something like that. So uh, I it was uh, it was a pleasant day, but I felt a bit guilty. There was like monks making make monks doing things, and I'm just sitting there sniggering. It was it was kind of bad. <laughs> it is it is a strange situation when the monks like they know they must know by now who their market is like as you just described a third of their clientele on the daily tours it's not going to be representative of their whole buying public either because the other 98 percent of their product sells in a 30 mile radius yeah 97 percent of their product once finished ends up in the fucking railway at Lanark. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, right. yeah. it's, it's like a, it's like a field of bloody broke. But fast, but you, you, you can get you can get it on tap as well. There's a few places, in it and it's it's in what I think is hilarious is in some of the little you know a little off licenses run about Lanarkshire because I come from Lanarkshire as well. It's chilled. It's in a chiller cabinet. Oh, it's like chilled. I, it's I'm like not making it. Right, I don't know how I don't know how Buckfast area you are. I, I'm from the nineties, so apologies for all of this. But it became a, there was a thing that kicked run that was utterly firmly believed by my cohort, not be me, but my cohort, that the lower the number, there's a serial number on the back. The lower oh, the I number, the better it was. Yeah. So you used to get four. It would go to the we the we shop room here, checking four or five bottles in their hand, checking which was the lowest number to get the ultimate buck fast. But I, I genuinely, once many, many moons ago, there was a fight outside the shop. 
And I says to someone, the fuck's going on there? I says, no man, it's up. Just turn around at me. As if this was all the explanation you needed. He says, last bottle of buck fast. It's <laughs> <laughs> genuine letter. There's only one left. And there was two folk that were wanting it. And they were going to eat each other for who was getting out. But it was the way he turns around. He just, it's just shrugs. Last bottle of buck fast. I can't make it go. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then... When does, it, when does it start? Like it's not. Oh, it's not like you know. Late, since you're, 80s, you know William 80s. Wallace didn't. You know. Yeah. I'd say mid mid eighties. I don't know. I don't know how long the tonic wine's been gone. The oh, point of it is somebody realised that that it's yeah. a a lethal combination of caffeine and yeah. uh, alcohol. I don't know. I mean, mm. that, I, it's, it's as long as I can remember. Yeah, eighties. I'd say. Well, I mean, I, I, I can. Yeah. My first, yeah. my first taste was at a school leaving party. We had a same age, Robin, so good, aye. Yeah. 89. So it was definitely yeah. a hang by the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so Anyways. we'll see you in it.